Good afternoon. Today is Monday, the 29th of January, 2024, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. Your host today, myself, Brian Gerrish, and I'm delighted to be joined by Alex Thompson and also Mark Anderson from the USA. And we are delighted to have a special guest who will be joining us for UK Column Extra. And uh, we'll be having a look at... Um, uh, low traffic neighbourhoods in Oxford and what people are doing to stand up against those. But let's uh, kick off with the uh, serious stuff, and that is we appear to have a world full of politicians that want nothing but war. Alex, uh, welcome. What have you got to tell us? Ryan, the war fever against Russia has reached as far as it could get geographically. It's reached Australia. So a deputy professor uh, in Australia, Alexei Muraviev, who's in the realm of national security and strategy studies, suggests that it is time to consider conscription. And he reminds his readers that over half a century ago, when Australia was going through a constitutional crisis, which eventually led to the crown deposing of Whitlam, the then prime minister, um, he progressively, as it was thought, abolished national service. The English-speaking countries did so earlier than the continent. Britain had already done so in 1960. But Muraviev is saying it's time to have these uh, conscripts back because, as far as he can see in Perth, Western Australia, the Russians are about to cause Australia a problem. Uh, I doubt it somehow, but there we go. Um, continuing the Northern European uh, shock and awe campaign, uh, which has been reported already with the uh, the Swedes, the Dutch in the form of Admiral Rob Bauer of NATO, uh, and the British getting in on the act, Sir Patrick Sanders, uh, we now have a Norwegian equivalent. So Erik Christofferson, who is the uh, chief of staff of the Norwegian Armed Forces, has said we don't have much time. And a couple of highlights, which Doug Bladets in his interview has brought out, suggest that we don't know whether we will be at war with Russia within one, two or three years. It's been written up by others as though he was saying we will certainly be at war in that time, which is not quite what he said, uh, but it's getting pretty desperate. Now, of course, NATO and its hangers on like Australia expect Uncle Sam to ride or sail to the rescue. The trouble is, as reported to military.com, that the United States Marines don't sail their own craft, unless you know different, of course, with your old Navy service. They require the US Navy. It's a separate service branch in America, unlike the Royal Navy and the Royal Marines being the same branch. They require them to carry them to the fields of deployment and battle. And Lieutenant General Carsten Heckel, who is the uh, commander of the Combat Development Command at the U.S. Marine Corps, has told military.com, so it's on the record now, uh, we are simply where we are. There's no immediate fix. War is a come-as-you-are game. And going into more detail, um, the, the general says that there is considerable, 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 I take that as military panic, big, large, by months gaps between the MEUs now. These are the units which combine the U.S. Navy and the military Sorry, and the Marines, in order to deploy. And there have already been cases in Africa where US citizens were at risk and the Marines were already raring to go and storm the beaches. But because of the lack of amphibious craft, because of the Navy uh, trying to scrimp and save on the number of uh, vessels in the fleet, even in the biggest uh, Navy in the world, supposedly, they weren't able to. So mutual recriminations going on there. Meanwhile, the United States wants its allies to help Ukraine. 
because it can't do so itself anymore. So the Defence Secretary, uh, Mr. Blinken, has offered his counterpart in Greece, Mr. Mitsotakis, $200 million to send weapons to Ukraine. And uh, the uh, actually, it's not his counterpart, it's the Greek Prime Minister. Uh, Blinken, in his own right, is quoted in Athens News as saying, we remain interested in the defence potential that Greece can transfer or sell to Ukraine. If these capabilities are of interest to Ukraine and pending the U.S. government's assessment of their status, so there'll be in some inspectors sent to warehouses, we, the U.S. Pentagon, may explore the potential for additional foreign military financing funds of up to $200 million. Meanwhile, in an extra link, which will be in the show notes, the main Greek daily, Ekaterimini, uh, has suggested that um, Greece is now ready to do battle with Turkey if necessary. Uh, there's been a one-upmanship in, the, in having a squadron of F-35 fighters on both sides because Turkey has extracted from the US that as the price of dropping its veto on Swedish NATO membership that Turkey would have an F-35 squadron. Meanwhile, floppy rifles in Germany, Der Spiegel, which will feature in a more nefarious role later in this news, reports that the German audit chamber uh, has wrapped the German forces, the Bundeswehr, over the knuckles uh, for deliberately softening the rigor of the shooting tests that were brought in for the new weapon of choice, uh, the G95A1, uh, which supposedly uh, didn't meet up to its shooting tests before being brought into regular service as the main uh, rifle, as I understand it. And uh, the uh, there are plenty of these documents uh, available to Der Spiegel investigative team, which uh, indicate that this was well known and that the uh, German armed forces just went back to the um, uh, drawing board and said, let's have less uh, demanding tests so that this weapon can be rolled out because we've already decided it will be the next one in service. Meanwhile, in Britain, the constitutional aspects of declaring war continue to gain attention uh, at the University College London Constitution Unit, which uh, together with Kings in London uh, poses as the mainstream commentator in academia on the British Constitution, they're asking the rhetorical question, how might Keir Starmer, for our overseas viewers, that's the likely next Prime Minister, codify his intended Prevention of Military Intervention Act with some blurb? Well, rather than read that turgid stuff, how about this response which has been tweeted or X'd, as we might now have to say, by the Western A. Price Foundation, that is Philip Ridley, an author regularly writing in UK column and uh, soon to feature in audio content of ours as well. Uh, he's tweeting back in reply to that, the tweet of that piece, uh, an article of his which is still in editor's choice on the front page of our website entitled, War Powers, Is the UK a Military Dictatorship or Is it a Legal Limited Monarchy? That latter phrase comes from the claim of right uh, of Scotland 1689 and is a constitutional uh, treaty. Uh, and he replies that both Sir Keir Starmer and the, cons uh, the Constitution Unit at UCL should know that the Crown already has no prerogative to engage in war to defend places not belonging to it without consent of the British Parliament. See the 1700 Act of Settlement. No new legislation is required as set out in my article. More pithily, from the ethno-nationalist side of the spectrum, I think as often Morgoth is peerless from the northeast of England. He has a piece on the looming spectre of conscription. And uh, I'll just read this paragraph because it's too good to miss. It is a bit uh, in your face, but it has to be at this point. He says it would be enjoyable to think that chickens were coming home to roost. He's referring to the fact that people are realizing the millennials won't fight and will actually fight against the government if someone tries to conscript them. But he says the chickens can't walk anymore. He then says, 
white boys, and of course their recruitment is down in America significantly, white boys don't want to have a giggling Russian girl sitting in an office in Bobrovka fly grenade-laden drones into their gonads as they cower in a bog. He's referring to what happens in Ukraine. Everyone knows why, says Morgoth. Our leaders can't admit why, of course, because to do so would reveal them as some of the stupidest people in all of world history ever to hold power. He's not the only one who thinks that way. Uh, this meme from the, uh, cobbled together from the old Fast show shows a yokel stumbling out of his garden shed as he used to do every week in British TV comedy. And he says, this week I have been mostly warmongering. But I think Mark has a, a bit of comment there on uh, the internationalization of the war. Uh, yeah, good day, gentlemen. In Foreign Affairs magazine, as advertised in a Brookings Institution email, uh, there's a new article. Uh, I didn't have a paywall. It's just called The Next Global War, written by Hal Brands. There's no question mark at the end. The Next Global War. A real quick little snippet. The U.S. isn't facing a formalized alliance of adversaries as it did during WW2. It probably won't see a replay of a scenario in which autocratic powers conquer giant swaths of Eurasia and its littoral regions. Yet with wars in Eastern Europe and the Middle East already raging and ties between revisionist states becoming more pronounced, all it would take is a clash in the contested Western Pacific to bring about another awful scenario, one in which intense interrelated regional struggles overwhelm the international system and create a crisis of global security unlike anything since 1945. What's interesting there is they're positing the idea that the international system is what's holding the line and will only have war if the international system is overwhelmed, when others would argue, probably myself, that the international system is actually a failure and exacerbates things and may very well be the engine of war ultimately. It's a long read like many ponderous foreign affairs articles are, but it's just another example of how they're upping the ante, wars, rumors of wars, and the psychological effect of rumors of wars is the ongoing war, a shooting war we'd have to wait and see. Thank you very um, much for that, Mark. And it just reinforces why Morgoth in his blog uh, on con refusing conscription describes what we're being called to fight or the younger among us are being called to fight. He describes it as globo homo. <laughs> Alex, thank you, thank you very much very much for that report and uh, Mark for your comments there. Um, Alex, from your section, very interesting. The American uh, military got similar problems to UK. They can't get ships where they need to be. They've got manning problems. And uh, we've also got the other question over who is creating these wars and are they actually legitimate wars uh, since nobody is declaring war? But let's listen to uh, some of the politicians and senior military people talking, and we'll kick off here with David Cameron. Last night, four RAF typhoons took part in military action together with the Americans to further degrade uh, the Houthi capacity to carry out these attacks on shipping in the Red Sea. Uh, what the Houthis are doing is unacceptable, it's illegal, and it's threatening the freedom of navigation. That's why we've taken the action. Alongside that action is a whole set of measures we'll be taking, including sanctions and other pressure to put on the Houthis, combined, of course, with the action the Royal Navy is taking with others in the Red Sea. And we'll be building the strongest coalition of support to back the steps that we've been taking. 
Well, there we are, truly horrible. I wonder how many people remember Cameron speaking as uh, Prime Minister, putting on his very posh, very serious voice as he tells the uh, audience and the world uh, what is actually happening, those nasty Houthis. Of course, we, United Kingdom, the US, NATO, we have not done anything out of the ordinary. All of this trouble has simply come out of nowhere. Uh, but there he is on the world stage saying... Uh, what he and the British military are going to do about it. All of this, of course, is a smokescreen and a lie because at the moment Britain's military are in polarous uh, situation uh, with a lack of equipment and men. And, well, let's hear some further comment from a retired Colonel Tim Collins. You first came to prominence, obviously, as uh, a military leader. Um, the biggest challenge that you might face were you still in the forces today would be what's happening in the eastern border of NATO, uh, Russia. Do you think that we are ready, fit to pay, play our part in the defence of Europe? We are, in this country, absolutely not ready. Our, our military is a shadow of itself. Our two of our biggest assets, the, um, the two aircraft carriers, are tied up alongside in Portsmouth when we have a crisis in the Red Sea. So it gets interesting when we hear Cameron speaking and then we get the reality of the situation about the UK armed forces. The carriers can't operate in the uh, Red Sea. We simply can't get them out there. We haven't got the supply and the support ships. And also the army is getting smaller and less effective, less credible by the day. So that retired colonel pointing it out. But let's go to the uh, boss and uh, General Sanders himself. General Sanders has made no secret of the fact he thinks the British army is too small. The current Conservative government has cut it to its smallest size in more than 300 years. And General Sanders made the point that over the last 30 years, the British army has halved in size. He's made the point that he sees the current generation of soldiers as a pre-war generation. So we're in a pre-war generation, but by some strange event, the armed forces have got smaller and smaller. Um, many of the media reports are talking about the British Army shrinking as if it had been put on the, the wrong wash cycle in the washing machine. But the reality is deliberate calculated policy has been destroying Britain's military to make it smaller, less effective, and of course, weakening it with the woke agenda. Um, so let's listen to General Sir Patrick Sanders talking about future soldier and something he's discovered. Well, future soldier is a response to um, you know, the strategic context we're in. Um, and that was captured, I think, pretty well in the integrated review in 2021. But of course, what we've had since then is the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Um, and so although we, we characterised Russia as a threat, I think the threat, the, the speed at which that's accelerated towards us um, has taken everyone by surprise. And so what we've done is to um, adapt at real pace um, what Future Soldier set out. Um, because we know that we could be required to fight um, and certainly we need to be able to deter the threats in Europe 
um, this decade. Future Soldier is incredibly exciting. So um, at its heart, um, it's the most radical transformation of the British Army that I've experienced in the 40 years that I've been in uniform. This is an incredibly exciting time to be joining the Army. And if you're in the Army now, you join now, the Army you join will look radically different in the course of the next six or seven years. And just to give you a sense of, of the pace of that, um, we've now got um, a really clear sense of our purpose. So the Army's purpose is to fight and win wars on land. Well, Alex, I'm going to ask you for a little bit of help here, because by the time we got to that final statement, he's been in the army for 40 years. But apparently it's only now recently that he's understood what the purpose of the army was. I want to say that this man does not have the mental acumen to do the job he's doing. But there's something else. It is like he has the mind of a child. He's trying to tell us that with all of the intelligence systems in UK and the West, we didn't see the threat from the Russians. And oh my goodness, now we've got a problem because we don't have an army capable of doing anything effective in the field overseas. But he's only just learned the purpose of why we have an army. What is, what's your explanation for the mindset of this man? Brain scramble of some kind. I'm glad you gave me a bit of a bridge there before bringing the camera onto me because I had to uh, suppress quite a hearty laugh at that last sentence. Um, as usual, I go for linguistic analysis. I don't think that somebody as well-bred as Sir Patrick really speaks as casually and sloppily as that with the dropped consonants between vowels. People might for short call it American speech, where, of course, there's no, there's no association of register with it. But in Britain, certainly in his upbringing, that would have been uh, a no-go for anyone of class and breeding. So I think he is deliberately, like Tony Blair in his early years of premiership, uh, when he pretended to pronounce football as football, uh, I think what he's doing here is uh, showing that he's a man of the people and, and uh, putting things in oversimplified terms. That looking up, and if I'm not mistaken to the right as well, uh, suggests to me a kind of panic or brain freeze moment. Mm. Well, if we've got uh, the senior man having brain freezes, I don't have any confidence in his ability to defend the nation. But the second point I want to make is that history shows us a deliberate policy to destroy Britain's military. And the UK column has been warning and warning over a great many years on this issue. So let's have a look at some previous uh, reports. Um, this, this one is up to date. So this is Sky News. Uh, RAF jets flying 3,000 miles for Houthi strikes as flagship aircraft carriers remain in the UK. And uh, we've talked about that. It's partly manning and partly the support ships. Here's the mail aircraft carrier fiasco as the UK refuses to deploy either of its 3.5 billion warships to help tackle Yemen's Houthis. And uh, then we can go back here and have a look at uh, old reports. RAF cuts could make Britain's airspace vulnerable to attack. Uh, competition to give retired HMS illustrious a new home. Uh, here's um, uh, HMS Art Royals being cut up in a Turkish scrapyard. Scrapping of the RAF Nimrods. British Army cuts are one hell of a risk after Crimea, says General. And uh, we said at the time 
to destroy Britain, vote Conservative 2015. So none of this is accidental. This was planned policy by the political parties, uh, labouring on it as well, but other things going on, the wokeness of the military, and this was army fitness tests being rewritten to make sure the women could cope with what was happening. But if you look at the reality everywhere, uh, women are coming into front line of the military. That is a man lost to the front line, and that is a weakening of the military. That may be contentious with some of our um, women uh, audience today, but that is the harsh reality of it. Meanwhile, we've got big money for jobs which are more akin to sitting in an office than being in uniform for an army, so looking for a new career cybersecurity. Uh, here we've got Forces TV from 2016 talking about the sell-off of mod assets in order to build uh, homes, 10 military sites to be sold for 7,000 homes. And apparently every pound we make by disposing of excess land will be reinvested into a defence budget that keeps Britain safe. Um, so that's the reality, planned destruction. Let's very quickly have a look at uh, what, um, what Boris Johnson had to say to the idea of recruiting youngsters to fight the Russians. Sir, Lance Corporal Johnson reporting for duty and responding to the appeal from General Sanders for a citizen army and encouraging young people across the country to think of the attractions, advantages of some kind of military training or service. Because at the moment they think it's either uncool or unethical or perhaps they're not following General Sanders they're following Colonel Sanders to find out what we need to do about it read my column in the Daily Mail so I just say to the audience we I have to include myself I wasn't able to stop him but we allowed this person to become a politician who ultimately destroyed any peace between Ukraine and the Russians. And this is the idiot now talking to the public uh, on the lines of getting young people involved to die on the battlefield. Well, I'll just uh, reiterate um, uh, what Alex has shown, which is that the uh, Telegraph here, why it's maybe too late for the West to avoid war. And on the right, we've got Peter Hitchens, who quite rightly is pointing out we need to do something to stop this madness. But I'm going to say even Peter Hitchens doesn't see, seem able to put the pieces together of what we're faced with. And there's a little video clip here from a, a, a US man who's now living in the Donbass warning us. And I think this is a very, very uh, pertinent track, which many people should pay attention to. He tells us what is coming. Let's have a listen. You know, I've been saying for 10 years that people in the United States should take a lesson from what's happened in Ukraine and understand that, you know, what the U.S. who controls the Ukrainian government has done to Ukraine, destroyed the economy, you know, caused the death of millions of their citizens, you know, uh, made them... Uh, you know, a pariah and a disgrace on the world political stage. <clears throat> All these things that they have done in Ukraine, and I've been telling people in America this for 10 years now, you know, what the U.S. government and the people who own and control the U.S. government and the European governments, what they have done 
to people in other countries around the world, they will do to their own citizens too. So a very simple but very powerful statement. I'm just going to reinforce it as fast as I can by saying, just have a look back at what was happening. Here's 2013. And we have Prince Charles, who said he's going to be working with David Cameron, Ed Miliband and Nick Clegg to recruit an army of two million to save a lost generation, a so-called community army. Uh, if we have a look at uh, what David uh, Cameron and others got up to, of course, getting the fear factor going uh, with uh, constant um, commentary on the risks of terrorism and how terrible uh, terrorist attacks would be. But this was ramping up the fear, bringing in prevent, targeting children at school uh, channel, so protecting vulnerable people from being drawn into terrorism. This was, in fact, more fear, more spying, and leading us through to MAPA, uh, where we have groups across UK spying on individuals supposedly to keep us safe. And if I just end on this, uh, we should also remember that Eric Pickles, former community minister, said we're going to shake up the balance of power in this country. We're going to change the nature of the Constitution, be in no doubt about our commitment to localism. I know I look like an unlikely revolutionary, but the revolution starts here. And if people still don't get what the real intent of these people is, I'll just end here with um, Michael Gove. And he was quoted in 2014 as saying, so if the right candidate for any public appointment happens to be a member of the Revolutionary Communist Party or someone who has been generous enough to support a political party with their hard-earned cash, if they are the right person, then he or she will be appointed. That's the end of it. And on that note, um, let's come across to Mark. Uh, we can clearly show that people, in my mind, with a strong communist agenda, were working to destroy Britain back in uh, the um, uh, 2013, 2014 period. And uh, I'm sure that they're still at the treasonous work today. But of course, it's the big um, globalist organizations that are creating many of the policies. And you've been having a look at the World Economic Forum. Uh, yeah, uh, good day again, gentlemen. Uh, the World Economic Forum, of course, conducts that annual meeting in Davos. And um, I've got a few slides to show, not too many. And uh, I had to focus on AI. There's a lot you can look at. So breaking it down, the rapid growth of artificial intelligence has raised critical questions, and they have asked some good questions at WEF. Um, and we'll move on from there. Uh, given that AI will impact our societies and industries, what solutions, dialogue, and education are needed? All generally good questions, good things to explore. And we do have a video clip coming up. This is Alexandra Reeve Givens. She does make some good points but then I've got some other context to share that will paint a broader picture. A second area that we need to think about is surveillance. How much easier it becomes for governments to surveil their populations, particularly in regimes that have poor human rights records or authoritarian regimes. Face recognition technology, we all know what that is. That is AI powered, right? The way that that system is trained and it learns. Uh, we've seen that deployed to surveil protests, to identify suspects in a protest so that they can be pulled out, to caution people against protesting and participating in those public spaces.
So you can see that there are some good points raised there, but if you look at it contextually, um, you can pick out some things, especially things that aren't shown on the video. For example, she said that those other regimes, those authoritarian regimes, they might misuse AI. She's making that um, initial bias, that fundamental bias that's very common at the WEF, that it's only the other guys, uh, Viktor Orban's Hungary, uh, uh, Vladimir Putin's Russia, and so on, that will abuse these things. It could never be the EU. It could never be the United States. It could never be Britain. And so those are valid concerns, but the context is very important. Some of the other comments briefly, there was a futurist and black investor, uh, Will I Am, he goes by that name, Will I Am. And he, he said things like, the AI will be a whole new way to unearth tomorrow's industries because we know AI is gonna topple, that is topple today's industries. And there's other questions, you know, um, Uber drivers, uh, bean counters at financial institutions, various clerks, their jobs will be gone under AI. There's different ramifications for that. Uh, AI mimics, but it does not really futurize. It can't imagine. So they're calling on the young of the world, the youth of the world, to combine their inherent innate imagination with AI, things like that. Um, Mr. Gupta talked about, uh, this is uh, Tamanshu Gupta. He's a, um, an Indian um, AI expert. Uh, Himanshu Gupta, he talked about farmers being able to get um, uh, drought-resistant seeds cheaper and faster with the use of AI. There may, see, may be some advantages there and so on. Uh, many other things. There's concern that people uh, whose financial benefits and eligibility is based on AI may lose their benefits because AI will misread their background. So there's, there is a palpable and um, maybe sufficient concern being expressed at the World Economic Forum about the pitfalls of AI. But on the other hand, there's this kind of mindset that AI has to be adopted in, all it, in its entirety and that we simply have to navigate the choppy waters of dealing with all the ramifications, especially the negatives, of course. So it's a full embrace of AI and the inherent bias that I talked about creates a lot of problems because only those other countries, only those authoritarian regimes uh, would, would abuse it. And the EU uh, couldn't possibly be authoritarian, neither could the US nor Britain. And uh, we have another slide here. This is an aspect of AI that's perhaps being overlooked. Uh, in the movie War Games released in June 1983 in the US, the lead character, a skilled teen computer hacker played by Matthew Broderick, inadvertently hacks into Joshua, an AI computer trained to fight nuclear war games, but Joshua thinks the games are real. So when the character in the movie begins to engage with Joshua, Joshua actually starts a scenario that all the nuclear powers on their um, surveillance screens, on their monitoring screens, thinks is real. And I wrote an article a few years back, Brian, and I'm going to get this for next week, I believe. Um, there's already been a lot of studies and contemplation and developments of prototypes of computers that would fight war automatically, that would fight war um, without much human intervention, other than the initial input of data, which is a lot like Joshua in the War Games movie. So the War Games fiction could become fact if these developments keep going, 
and computers are developed to fight wars um, on autopilot. And uh, so that's that's another dimension of this that wasn't really mentioned at the World Economic Forum. And just to wind up, and maybe you guys want to comment, um, I'll be trying to cover as best I can artificial intelligence and climate change coming up at what's known as the South by Southwest Austin, Texas annual event. Some people call it World Economic Forum Junior. In some aspects, that true, that's true, not in all aspects. But as you can see, artificial intelligence is part of it. They're spending like five or six days on it and almost as many days on climate change. So there is sort of a similar WEF on my side of the pond. But I don't know if you guys have any comment or questions, either you guys. Uh, Mark, the only thing I'll, I'll say is that uh, the key point you made there, of, uh, of course, is that the World Economic Forum and these other global uh, powerhouses always regard themselves as being the good guys and anybody who disagrees with them as being the bad guys. I think that was a very key point that you made there. And of course, it's their policy, which is controlling a lot of the politicians worldwide. Well, let's move on. And uh, as always, we're going to say uh, thank you very much to everybody who's supporting the UK column. If you're not a member of the UK column, please consider becoming a member. Uh, your financial support would be very welcome. Uh, you can also help us financially by making a, pur a purchase from the UK Column shop. And of course, a UK Column membership gift voucher is a good way for you to help bring other people on board. At the end of the day, the material that we're putting out is to be shared. So we're very happy for you to do that, acknowledging the UK Column, if you would. Um, but uh, let's get the information and the facts out and about. Now, just a reminder that uh, tomorrow, uh, Tuesday, the 30th of January, uh, I've got an interview which is coming out at 1, 1 p.m. That's an audio in the Gutsy Women series with Moira Dundee, the very brave lady that took on the establishment by skipping and warning the public that something was badly wrong during the horrible time of uh, lockdown. So join me for this very amusing and interesting interview. And I'll also say that Moira strongly stood up for the men, even though she's a gutsy woman herself. So you might like to see that. Now, I did mention a guest, and I'm delighted to say that uh, Chaka Artwell is going to join us for extra time at the end of the news. And he has been very outspoken against the low traffic uh, neighbourhoods which are being implemented in Oxford. So if you're a member of UK Column, you'll be able to join us uh, for that interview after, uh, sorry, for that discussion after the news. Now, I'd also like to say that uh, several people uh, have pointed out um, that Anthony Carling uh, needs some financial help. He's been fighting the banks for many years and he's now in the horrible situation where his own home is in danger of being repossessed. Uh, there is a GoFundMe, which you can find here, Santander versus Carlin, urgent funding required. And I believe that he needs another £6,000 to help his uh, campaign against the banks, uh, effectively stealing property from people and selling mortgages they're not entitled to sell. Uh, this is a very big battle and he's at risk of losing his own home as a result of his courage. Now, good news, we've got a lot of people starting to step forward to take on the system. Uh, this one was sent in to us, the time has come, calling all men and women of Kurnow. 
And uh, basically, these are the groups meeting up at St. Austell Rugby Football Club that Sunday, the 4th of February, 2 to 4, to think about what practical steps people can take to protect themselves and challenge the system. And we've got another one here. This is West Somerset Safety Committee. Uh, they've produced a constitution, but essentially they're taking on everything they consider to be dangerous from 5G to potholes, more on potholes later in the news, education, LED weapons, uh, housing, uh, elderly support and local crime. And uh, you can see a telephone number and contact details at the bottom, bottom of that report. Now, um, Alex, let's bring you back on screen because you've got a little video clip for us here. Let's just start that playing. Uh, this has been spotted at Headgate and then 10 Southway in Colchester in Essex. Someone eagle-eyed has noticed that if you look at Google Earth's uh, mapping of that street, you'll find a series of natty yellow boards and protesters holding them uh, along the side of the road. That is, of course, the yellow board movement, and they have now been immortalized in Google Earth. So well done to them for that. It's interesting how Google Earth manages to get some of the, uh, the real world in there. But moving on to a segment I now have on immigration on the European continent. Uh, to set the scene, although it is from last summer, not brand new, there is a Dutch paper out uh, called Borderless Welfare State, The Consequences of Immigration for Public Finances. And it's authored by Van der Beek, Hartog and Rodenberg. And here is the table, which has uh, really proven to be the, uh, the heart of this, that there has been a costing now put, positive and negative, on different kinds of immigrants to the Netherlands. This has been done on Dutch budgetary figures against the opposition of Dutch uh, local and national government figures who said, how dare you put a price on people? Well, they have because it's scientific research. This has been written up among others by Defuckel 2.0, uh, who has said, Dutch research has revealed the true cost of mass immigration. And the spoiler alert is Westerners bring money in and people from other parts of the world uh, are bottomless sinks. Not a value judgment on the people, but a necessary thing to note. Les Echos in France, the equivalent of the Financial Times, reports that the right-wing parties in the French Assemblée Nationale have attempted to bring in a number of articles amending the uh, immigration law in France. Sadly for them, the Constitutional Council, which French patriots have long accused of being a captured body, has struck out in the way that continental uh, bodies of state do 32 of these articles, informing in a, in a tone of hauteur the parties that these articles don't reach the desired objective. They consider things like uh, putting a break on family reunion visas, uh, particular monitoring of foreign students, uh, lessening the numbers allowed in for health reasons. Uh, staying with Les Ecos, the response to that is that the uh, two <laughs> right-wing parties, uh, including Mrs. Le Pen's party, which we'll be talking about in a moment, are requiring a revision of that. So uh, it's clear that the French state has uh, got on its high horse this time. Uh, in Germany, the mainstream news in the form of the uh, Tagesschau show here is reporting, and this is uh, taxpayer-funded, that Mrs. Le Pen uh, of the Rassemblement National, formerly the uh, the National Front in France, is threatening to break with Alternative für Deutschland uh, at the European Union level, where at the moment they are united in an identitarian bloc. And uh, the wording uh, of this will be in the, uh, if you speak French, will be in the video of the press conference, which is in the show notes. Uh, in essence, Madame Le Pen said, and the, there'll be some explanation of what this is about in a moment, that I'm not at all in agreement uh, with the suggestions which uh, were 
made in Potsdam in November uh, by the AFD, her party uh, or her fraction colleagues at EU level. Uh, we will have to see whether there's any scope for further collaboration between the parties as a result. Uh, we are going to have to talk about these extremely serious differences of opinion. What has gone on here to fracture the unity of the identitarian uh, parties? Uh, well, the first hint comes in Der Spiegel. All of these links, of course, are in German, but you will be able to use show notes and then use a, a translation translation service online to render them into English or your native language. Der Spiegel, which really has to be quoted a lot because it sets the tenor of German public opinion, certainly the uh, the ruling classes, repeats that it's re re reports now uh, in a, an opinion piece uh, that it's time uh, that patients ran out with AFD. And we've, we've been reporting for quite a time that AFD and the Dutch Forum for Democracy are on the point of being banned by the establishment. And so what has pr prompted this? Well, uh, a journalist's collective called Corrective, which makes great shakes about its vaunted independence, uh, came out with this, that the new right wing had a secret plan against Germany. Uh, in what seems to have been classic cloak and dagger stuff, the BFV, the German uh, Interior Security Ministry, uh, officially called the Constitution Protection Agency, uh, put bugs in a clock on the wall when there was a meeting in Potsdam on the 25th of November. And we are told that uh, this uh, included uh, a, a call or, or a presentation being made by the Austrian identitarian Martin Zellner, married to Brittany Pettibone, to give her her maiden name. Some of our viewers will know that she was banned from Britain a while ago. We covered that at the time. Well, Zellner um, supposedly said, I have a plan to get rid of uh, people to North Africa, even if they uh, have a German passport already. Uh, if they are of foreign origin, particularly North African, we'll get rid of them. This is what has prompted these not at all spontaneous looking protests, which we see here reported on by Der Spiegel. They're carrying the dubious headline, tens of thousands demonstrate against AFD. They're rather jubilant about this spontaneous de demonstration of public uh, disgust. Meanwhile, they also carry a column by Susanna Bayer, another startlingly young uh, writer, uh, who says, contrary to what the plebs think, Germany is being very well governed by its coalition. And uh, it's all exaggerated criticism. She even goes on to say, I know that we journalists are not supposed to praise the government, but I'm going to defend them anyway. Uh, I'm going to do it because it's a column, so I can give my opinion, and because critical distance, which is the basis of uh, journalism also allows me to know a lot more than the plebs. Now, that, that last bit is paraphrased. What she actually says is that uh, I am able to question widely accepted truisms, how, how wise and clever of her. So Zellner has put out this newsletter that in a move which is extremely rare in the Schengen uh, group of countries, he may actually be blocked from entering Germany by an individually targeted order such as usually are given to gangsters as a result of what was presented at this meeting. Uh, some pictures quite recently of what the Antifa people who made up quite quite a bulk of the protesters against the AFD, what kind of banners they carry, show things like kill the cops, uh, send the unjabbed into the gas chambers. This is a bit of a couple of years ago, obviously. Um, kill the AFD, uh, kill those who think differently. This is all the kinds of people who are whipped up by the German BFV, the uh, German equivalent of MI5 or FBI, to attend these not at all spontaneous uh, protests. And the curious thing about it is that this corrective collective um, of, uh, you know, and something like Bellingcat in its formation uh, somehow managed to get the transcripts of the bug 
uh, from the German equivalent of MI5 from Mr. Selner's meeting and were therefore able to present it as though it was another Wannsee conference leading to a final solution of a racial problem. Uh, so serious questions to be asked there. Um, if people want more detail than we can put in this segment, there are uh, two particularly good pieces or writers, I should say, Tichys Einblick and Reitschuster. The links will be in the show notes in German. You can find chapter and verse on there on who funds Corrective, which has always been the big question. Uh, but just to end this segment, Eugupios, the Plague Chronicle, has this piece, Resistance is Not Futile. And people might be thinking it is at this point. And he stares uh, into the in the face the real prospect that the AFT will be banned, and the same might happen in other countries in the West. Uh, but he says that uh, actually, there's there's uh, there's nothing to worry about here uh, because the uh, every ounce of effort that the establishment is spending uh, on banning parties like AFD uh, is actually doing two things: it's causing them to uh, not be able to push forward their digital ID or what other other plans they have because they have to concentrate on lockdown or the war with Russia or banning the far right or whatever is there be in their bonnet. But it also means that the liberal democratic facade, the mask which they've been wearing, slips little by little and can't be put back. And uh, he says that uh, as a result of this, you know, uh, that they will, here's the sentence, there are a limited number of moves available to the authorities here and sooner or later they will run out of them. We, on the other hand, will always be here. Every step towards a more, more overtly authoritarian politics is a backhanded victory for us. Alex, thank you very much. It's incredible, isn't it? We've got chaos and breakdown uh, angst happening in, in all the countries across the European Union. It's also here in UK. It's happening in the US. This can't be accidental. This has got to be policy, which is coming out of the uh, geopolitical powerhouses like the World Economic Forum and the World Health Organization. Um, Mark, let's bring you back in, because if uh, if there's problems with uh, migration in Europe, uh, we've also got it in the States at the moment. Oh, absolutely. On steroids like never before. Uh, in this first slide, I can be relatively concise in this report. Representative Henry Cuellar, he's from here in Texas, and colleagues, they visited Mexico on a bipartisan, bipartisan congressional delegation. Uh, Cuellar is a Democrat. He went with three Republicans. We'll move on from there. Um, he had this to say. This is quite a clever quote. I have long said that the United States cannot continue playing defense on the one yard line known as the U.S.-Mexico border. We must work with Mexico to address the historic surge of migration before migrants arrive at the U.S. border. I'm pleased to have been able to raise. I'm pleased to have been able to raise these topics with President Lopez Obrador and Foreign Minister Barcina, um, and I look forward to working with our ally, that's Mexico, to address this crisis. But all is not well, as we'll see. We'll move on. This is me recently this past June with Joe Arpaio, a good friend of Donald Trump's. He's, of course, that legendary Maricopa County, Arizona sheriff, a man of high integrity, a real lawman, and there aren't many left. Uh, he had something very interesting to say. I talked to him last night on the phone, Brian, for about a half hour, and he reminded me that when he was a federal DEA agent back in the 70s, he arranged it so Mexico's military would work with the U.S. military and they would nip in the bud the cartel shipments of drugs, guns, trafficking of people and other contraband. They would nip it in the bud long before it reached the U.S. border. 
And that's how you effectively fight this. But what Representative Henry Cuellar was told uh, by Mexico is we spend more money on patrolling our southern border than the U.S. does. We have more men and material, material out there to defend our Mexican southern border than the U.S. However, uh, Mr. Opio, Sheriff Opio, agreed with me that you can't really trust what Mexico says. When Donald Trump was in as president, he brought Mexico to the table by threatening a lot of tariffs and other financial penalties on them uh, if they didn't cooperate, and the border was a lot more secure. Now, this next slide will segue into one other major item for today. This is the Migration and the 2030 Agenda by the International Organization for Migration of the United Nations. And what's significant here is that two young citizen journalists, uh, Anthony and Joshua Rubin, recently brought out a video where they embedded themselves in the migratory uh, caravans, and they start in Quito, Ecuador, and they embedded themselves in this long trek all the way through the Darien Gap jungle, very dangerous, all the way through Panama, Costa Rica, Nicaragua, on up to Guatemala, across the Mexican border. And when they got to the Mexican border and went across other borders, there were no border agents visible especially in Mexico, where they say they're outspending the U.S. on their southern border security. There was no sign of any border security being enacted by Mexico. Therefore, it appears that Mexico is just allowing these caravans to tra traverse Mexico up toward Texas and other areas along the U.S. southern border without any intervention whatsoever. So Representative Henry Cuellar and his delegation, apparently, apparently, I'll stress that word, was lied to based on what we know now. And along the way, the IOM, the International Organization for Migration, Brian, they had posters and advertisements all along that long trek from Ecuador to the Texas border. And the European Union had posters. And Doctors Without Borders had advertisements. And all of, that, all of those organizations, Brian, helped set up supply chains and supply depots and stations where the migrants, as they're called, can get food, water, clothing, other supplies. So even the EU, as, as well as the UN-associated IOM, are actually physically and tangibly helping this invasion to the U.S., even while, even while Mexico apparently is exaggerating or completely mis misrepresenting its own border security measures. And to wind up for today's report, I have just a couple more slides. This also comes from the report from those citizen journalists. Meanwhile, New York City becomes the largest municipality in the U.S. to allow non-citizens to vote in local elections. That's from the Washington Post. And a paper called The Eagle, Non-Citizens Will Be Able to Vote in D.C. Starting Next Year. A couple other things here, and that'll be concluding. The Illinois legislation would allow U.S. non-citizens to become police officers. Imagine that, they break the law to get here and that these illegals then could become police officers conceivably. States look to hire illegal immigrants to fatten struggling police departments. There it's more blunt. And New California law, New California law excuse me, allows non-U.S. citizens to become police officers. So this is the insanity that is the insult to injury and everything I've described, Brian. And one other thing, this is just an announcement. Meanwhile, Eagle Pass, about 300 miles from where I'm sitting in Texas, 
Yuma, Arizona, and a location along the California border are going to be locations where a convoy now en route starting today is going to converge and they're going to have rallies and speakers at these locations. It's called takeourborderback.com and they're going to protest the lack of effectiveness, really the uh, betrayal by U.S. federal border officials and border agents, and also they're skeptical of whether Texas Governor Greg Abbott is really serious about Operation Lone Star to control the border. So lots of very uh, uh, urgent and um, dramatic matters going on, Brian. I don't know if you guys have any comments, but that's what's that's what's shaping up. I just have one quick one, Mark, and that is that there's only one reason that you would want non-nationals uh, coming into posts as police officers or being able to vote, and that is to dilute the national identity with the incomers. And so what we're talking about here is revolution. I've already mentioned that word in today's uh, UK column news, and I think it's it's this is a correct application. This is about destroying society, American society in this case, in order to create a revolution where there is going to be a new system of government and the influx of the migrants is to help uh, that process. They are being used and abused, of course, to make this happen. Well, let's come on to the subject of potholes in the road. And um, thanks to Motorcycle News for this one, uh, well illustrated with this photograph, a headline, no hope for fast fixes on potholed UK roads. And what they're really saying is that across UK in tens of thousands of miles of UK roads, they're getting worse and worse. And even where some pothole fixing programs are happening, in many places, the roads are continuing to um, become worse because there is no money, apparently, uh, to repair and maintain our roads. Now, why am I putting this uh, to the audience today? Well, there's not much money apparently for anything. We haven't got money uh, in the treasury to uh, pay nurses or NHS workers more money. Uh, this suggestion was that a one-off payment of a thousand each for a million NHS nurses. Uh, that's certainly a lot of money and there's a debate to be had. But the point I'm making is the government saying no money. Uh, I could bring up this one, 90% of schools in England will run out of money next year, heads born, no money to run schools. Uh, we can bring in this one, at least 26 English councils at risk of bankruptcy in the next two years. There's no money to run local authorities. Uh, but oh dear, there is money for war. So here is the uh, House of Commons Library report saying that UK is one of the leading donors to Ukraine alongside the US and Germany. And the UK has pledged almost 12 billion in overall support to Ukraine since February 2022. So we're just pointing out the fact that uh, there's no money for, we'll call them the good necessary things in life. But if there's war, then magically the chess open and out comes the bullion in order to keep the war and the killing going. Uh, but of course, we should remember that this is money created from nothing by the banking industry of the world. And UK Column will be commenting on that angle uh, much more in the coming um, days and weeks. Um, but here's the rub. The money isn't given to Ukraine, of course, is loaned. World Bank's new $1.5 billion loan 
will provide relief to households. Well, it might do initially, but of course, the debt trap will pull those families down. Here we've got the IMF approving $12.6 billion in a Ukraine loan, more debt around the neck necks of the Ukrainians, the ones that do survive the war. Uh, here's CNN, uh, where the Americans are finally questioning where their money has gone, $113 billion. Uh, is the is the figure in this case. Where has that money gone in Ukraine? Well, nobody's too sure. Uh, but this particular article by CNN did put up the graph on the right showing the huge amount of money that US has poured into this war, uh, but also showing the amounts that other countries have put in Germany at 20.58. Uh, a billion dollars and uh, UK at 7.38 now up to uh, 12 billion pounds. So this is pretty amazing. Plenty of money for war. Now, where does that take us? I think that's back to you, Alex. A closing segment on overreach by national and supranational bodies, and they're getting their comeuppance in some cases. Uh, the legacy title, The National Post uh, in Toronto, reports that the Emergencies Act was invoked by Justin Trudeau's administration unlawfully, unconstitutionally. That's the ruling of the federal court, not a, but in Canada they have the federal court, which is a superior court. It's not the court of highest instance, but the uh, governing uh, Liberal Party will face a steep hurdle in appealing against this because the whole point of this judgment, which was also covered by True North here, uh, is that the Emergencies Act should only be invoked in a democracy as a measure of last resort. The usual proportionality uh, tests were not carried out, uh, is what the court has found. Consequently, as embedded in tweets uh, in that True North article, if you go through it uh, and look at the segments of the, uh, the judgment which have been pulled out in particular, uh, what was also unlawful and unconstitutional, more particularly, were the bank freezes on the truckers, uh, the recom the, the what you could call it the the commandeering or the requisitioning. You could even call it the conscription of uh, tow truck owners in the Toronto area, uh, which did happen. So we've been talking about conscription earlier, but uh, for those with tow trucks, it was already carried out a couple of years ago by Canadian government bodies. That was also unlawful as a result. All the unpersoning of the Canadian truckers, which shocked the world during COVID as the first time that those fangs were bared anywhere in the world, has now been overturned, even just on the basis of uh, human rights-flavoured legislation and the proportionality test. Meanwhile, a committee of the European Parliament, the Committee on Culture and Education, has successfully got through the European Parliament, this resolution, this was actually before Christmas, it's a report on European historical consciousness. And what's important here is uh, uh, resolution 12, that the committee and hence also the Parliament now since the adoption, stresses the vital role of education, skip a bit. And here you see in the fourth of the seventh li seven lines of the paragraph, to allow for more emphasis on a supranational historical understanding. And you're not going to have national history. You're going to have multiple perspectives on history, which is your ancestors were evil and fostering corresponding teaching styles that favor reflection and discussion over knowledge transfer. So never mind whether you're wrong about slavery, just rage against the machine in the class and you'll get your points. Uh, Info BAE reports, and this is interesting given Mark's uh, comments a moment ago, that uh, under the rotating chairmanship of Paraguay, Mercosur, the Latin American EU or NAFTA, 
has entered some fairly advanced negotiations now with the European Union to form a trade bloc. Uh, Javier Garcia de Viedma is the uh, European Union diplomat uh, in uh, Paraguay who's been following this and reporting that there is a will on behalf of these two blocs that supranational body will talk to supranational body to form a supranational or maybe supra-supranational trading bloc. Yes, it's got that far. And uh, you know, the um, uh, stumbling block here is only that Mercosur doesn't like the EU's economic sanctions because it wants to be in uh, half in bed with Russia and China as well. Uh, but it's got to that point. And uh, just on another point, in Strasbourg, the separate body of the European Court of Human Rights, not a product of the EU, but a, an arm of the Council of Europe, uh, has finally, only four years after the ECLJ, and uh, an NGO in Strasbourg, started reporting on these abuses, uh, has finally got a mechanism in place for judges to report conflicts of interest and for those whose trials are coming up to be told who is likely to judge their case so that they can say, would you mind recusing yourself because you're in Soros's pocket and here are the receipts. It's taken that long, actually, to get even such a basic measure in that court. Uh, the Financial Times, as picked up by Reuters, has now taken to naked threats, uh, sorry, the, is reporting that the EU, the Commission, uh, is taking to naked threats uh, against uh, Hungary. So uh, it reports that Brussels has got a stra strategy to target Hungary's economic weaknesses, imperil the foreign, its currency, Hungary is one of the few EU members that still has its own currency, and collapse investor confidence in order to hurt jobs and growth. Those bits are in quotes. So the European Union is planning to hurt jobs and growth of one of its member states if Budapest refuses to lift its veto on military supplies to Kiev and monetary support to that end. The Financial Times has seen that uh, confidential agreement. The deadline is the 1st of February, and perhaps we see a little more uh, about what's going on uh, in Brussels now. Uh, but uh, just to close things off, Thomas Sheridan in Ireland, and you might think this is a bit advanced conversation to overhear, but Ireland being Ireland, it's probably true. He reports that he heard a passerby say, the more culturally entrenched the rainbow flag and multiculturalism become, the more emphasis is placed upon the human rights of imported religious extremists, refugees, sexual psychotics, and illegal immigrants, but at the same time, the human rights of the native and traditional people are diametrically abused accordingly. Uh, and for more on that, the show notes will have a couple of links uh, on uh, the hate speech, uh, uh, the crime of hate speech now being an EU-level crime. Uh, as promulgated, uh, or at least recommended by the European Parliament to the Council, which will have to legislate on the matter. Uh, so there's a, a, a piece there by Brussels Signal as well, which gives chapter and verse on that. A couple of and finalies as well. Here's the well-known meme of the red buttons that are all bad options. Usually it shows nuclear war and something else. This time the four buttons in, in, in light of Texan secessionism, which is coming up now as an agenda, is that poor Uncle Joe, who's sweating a bucket, is faced with the options of war with Russia, war with Iran, war with China, and war with Texas. And just a final one from me. I beg your pardon, that's not the right one. I'll go back. Okay, Alex, we, we'll end there. We did have a couple of other memes that we'll save those. Thank you very much uh, for that. Well, a pretty packed uh, UK column news, so much happening, but it's very clear that we are being attacked by our own governments and they are implementing a globalist agenda which does not have our best interests at heart. It's up to us to stand up and be counted. And I'm just going to say thank you for a person in the chat box that's just pointed out that as we speak, uh, Richard D. Hall will be starting his uh, court case. And uh, my goodness, he needs some support because 
Of course, if Richard D. Hall goes down, we can be sure that Mariana Spring and the BBC will be challenging anybody, anybody who dares to stand up and criticise the UK government or indeed the BBC over its uh, reporting of matters in UK and worldwide. We'll leave it there. Don't just take it. Stand up and do something. Find a friend because two people are, are a lot stronger than one. Alex uh, and Mark, thank you very much for joining me. We'll be back in a few minutes for UK Column Extra and we'll be talking to Artwell from Oxford on those uh, low traffic neighbourhoods. So if you're a member, join us then. Thank you. Bye bye.